the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And in and, and our lives, too, you know, I think sometimes we see some things. I think the Lord just wants to get our attention a little bit and say, remember how fragile this is. There are moments in life, you know, you kind of just miss an accident or, I, I, you know, you just something happens and you think to yourself, man, just a second earlier, and I, something bad would have happened. How fragile life is. How grateful we should be. And, you know, sometimes it's easy to focus on what we don't have and how things aren't going the way that we want them to. We forget all the favor that God has shown to us. We complain. I want to encourage you, take time each day to thank God for His mercy and grace. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Genesis. Last time in Genesis 33, we saw that Esau and Jacob were in the midst of making amends. Jacob met with Esau after much trepidation, but finally stood face to face. Esau hugged his brother. All things looked as though they would be resolved. But would it last? We pick up with Pastor Will in Genesis chapter 33. Then verse 6, the handmaidens came near, they and their children, so that's Bilhah and Zilpah, and they bowed themselves down. And Leah also with her children came near, and they bowed themselves. And afterwards came Joseph near and Rachel, and they bowed themselves. And so again, we're no threat to you, Jacob, we, or Esau. We are not here to take anything from you. And then Esau said, what mean, did you mean by all this drove which I met? And he's referring to the flocks and the herds that Jacob sent as presents the night before. What's that all about? And he, Jacob said, these are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. With their grace, it means mercy, kindness, compassion. It carries the idea of undeserved good treatment. These are that you would treat me well when I don't deserve it. It is, in essence, Jacob's confession to his brother. I did wrong by you when I was last here, and I want to make things right. But Esau, he, he, it's like, he goes, man, I have enough. You know, the word there enough actually means an abundance, excess. I got more than I need, okay? My brother... Keep that which you have to yourself. Esau had done well for himself despite missing out on the family inheritance. Being a profane man, the covenant blessing had zero meaning for him. So there wasn't a reason to be upset at Jacob anymore. He says, I've got more than I need. Jacob, however, cannot let Esau reject this offer. See, in Oriental culture, you never take a gift from an enemy, only a friend. That's how it worked. If Esau takes this gift from Jacob, he's acknowledging before everyone, before everyone in Jacob's group and everyone in his group, that he's on good terms with Jacob. Jacob needs him to take it in order to be able to move on without any worry or any fear. And so Jacob, verse 10, says, Nay, I pray you, if now I have found grace, if you have forgiven me, if you have you know, shown compassion upon me, if I have found grace in your sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore have I seen your face as though I had seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. 
Take, I pray you, my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough or more than I need. And so he urged him and Esau took it. See, if Esau accepts this gift, it would be like being on the mountain with the Lord all over again where he wrestled the night before. It'd be like winning again, even though you lose. And for him, you know, where where God looked at his broken, failed state and gave him a new shot at life, Jacob says, I want a new start with you, Esau. And if you take this from me, it means that we're both sincere in this, that we're not going to be upset at each other anymore, where all the competition that's been there in the past is gone and dead. I don't know, have you ever had a moment like that where a current event serves as a reminder of a day when your whole world was changed because of God's grace? I think we all kind of have special things like that in our lives. Peter had special things, remember? Every time the Lord did something, said something to him three times, kind of got his attention. It brought him back to that time when he denied him three times, and yet the Lord forgave him, the Lord restored him, and the Lord used him again. And God very often would do something three times and remind Peter and go, okay, Lord, I know you love me, and I know you're trying to get through to me. Here I am. I'm all yours. And I know God does that in my life. There are times when he does something and it will remind me of when my life changed or I experienced his grace for that very first time and I want to make sure I stay there. He says, God has graciously, he's dealt graciously with me. This is his confession that I deserve nothing of all the wealth that I brought home with me. It wasn't because of my hard work. It wasn't because of how smart I was. God was just gracious to me. Oh, the magnificence of God's grace. We look at all that we have and we think, God, you're so good. I don't deserve any of this, do I? And you know, sometimes it's easy to focus on what we don't have and how things aren't going the way that we want them to. We forget all the favor that God has shown to us. We complain. I want to encourage you, take time each day to thank God for his mercy and grace. And I want to challenge you, look for specific things. You know, if you need to write it down, write it down, you know. But look for specific things that you can be thankful for that where he's been merciful and gracious to you. It's a great way to protect yourself from having an unthankful heart. One of the indictments that God brings against those in the last days, he says, perilous times shall come. And he'll say one of the things about them was neither were they thankful. I remember I was sharing the gospel down Church Street years ago with a a young girl. And I said to her, I was talking about the Lord, and oh, I, don't, I don't believe in God. And I said, well, so who do you think gives you the very air that you breathe? You know, who, who do you think created you? Who do you think made you? My mom and dad made me. I said, well, who made them? Well, well, their mom and dad. I said, you really want to go down this road? As eventually that comes to a stopping point. She was not thankful at all for the life that God had given to her. Not thankful at all for the breath that she breathed. I had someone come through this mine, my line this morning, and they said, you know, a strange thing happened this week. I was out doing something I normally do and with someone that I do all the time with. And all of a sudden, they, they had fallen down on the ground and they were dead right there. He said, you know, he was a believer and so I was thankful he went to be with the Lord and we were praying for his family. He said, but you know what? He said, man, that, that gripped me. And in and, and our lives too, you know, I think sometimes we see some things, I think the Lord just wants to get our attention a little bit and say, remember how fragile this is. There are moments in life, you know, you kind of just miss an accident or, I, I, you know, you just something happens and you think to yourself, man, just a second earlier, and I, something bad would have happened. How fragile life is. How grateful we should be. 
Well, he takes the present, and verse 12, Esau says, why don't you come home with me, Jacob? He said, let us take our journey, and let us go, and I'll go before you. He said, you come, come with me, I'll, I'll lead the way, and you can come home with me. Esau, he offers protection for Jacob and his family. And uh, talk about a mountain being removed and thrown into the sea. I mean, last time they spoke, they weren't talking. And, and word around town was, when dad dies, I'm going to kill him. But here he offers protection, a home. Jesus sure knows how to make a way, doesn't he? But Jacob's still new to this whole trusting God thing. And the idea of being so close to Esau isn't exactly appealing to him. Remember, in chapter 32, he confessed to the Lord. He said up there in verse 11 of 32, Deliver me, I pray you, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. Jacob had lived for 20 years with this fear. It didn't just disappear overnight. And so Jacob objects to this plan, verse 13. He said unto him, My Lord knows that the children are tender, and the flocks and the herds with young are with me. So if men should overdrive them too hard, basically, one day, then all the flock would die. So let my Lord, I pray, you pass over before his servant, you go ahead, and then I will lead on softly or slowly, according as the cattle that goes before me, and the children be able to endure until I come unto my Lord unto Seir. That's the mountain where, the mountain is the hilly area where Esau lived. Now, <laughs> Jacob gives two excuses of why he says, no, I'm not going to go with you, uh, right? We're not going to travel together. He says, number one, he goes, my kids are kind of wimpy. The word there, tender, it means not tough, to be soft or weak in the area of strenuous activity. They're not used to being outside. They're, they're, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're basement kids, you know, they live in mom's basement. And you know, Esau would understand that because Jacob was like that back home, Right? Remember, Esau was the outdoorsy guy and Jacob was the home, homeboy, homebody, you know, the mama's boy. Jacob's almost like he's saying, you know me, bro. I'm not accustomed to being out in the wild like this, like you are. My kids are the same way. So, you know, you go on ahead. And, and the other problem he brings up, of course, is the flocks. He says, you know, they've, they've given birth, so we've got young. They've got to eat. They've got a nurse. And if we overdrive them, they'll die, and that will be costly to me. So he says, not a good idea. I need a much slower pace. And so he says, you go on ahead. I'll get there in my own time. I'll get there in my own time. And so what Esau said, well, at least let me now leave with you some of the folk that are with me. He wants to make sure that he's got protection. Jacob says, what needs it? You know, he says, what purpose would that serve? I'm, I got plenty of, of my own men to keep us safe. But the reason Jacob's doing that is because he doesn't want to be tied down to going to Mount Seir. Why? Let's keep reading. He says, what, what does it need? Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. You know, just let me do my thing. So Esau returned that day on his way unto Seir. Verse 17. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth, and he built him a house, and he made booths or tents for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth, which means booths. Succoth is a town located in the fertile Jordan Valley area north of the Jagbach River, the exact opposite direction Esau went. Old habits die hard, don't they? This is a very Jacob thing to do. Oh, brother, you know me. <laughs> you know, not exactly Popeye, you know. You know, you go on ahead, and you know, my kids are like that too, so we'll take a slow pace, and we'll get to you eventually. And then as soon as Esau's out of sight, he's like, north, because Syria's south. Headed north. So he crosses back over the river that he just limped across, 
But he doesn't go very far. Sukkoth is, uh, it's about 40, uh, it's, uh, it's about, uh, three or four miles north of the Jabbok River. Um, it, it's real, actually not really a city, it's just a town. Um, and, and so Jacob, uh, you have to wonder if Esau kind of, when he got back home and Jacob never came, he kind of shook his head and said, he's a bit more humble, but same old Jacob, you know. Uh, but there will be numerous times that Jacob acts like this. He'll go back to his old conniving ways. And the Bible makes it a point to call him Jacob when he's acting like that and Israel when he's trusting God. And uh, this reminds us that though we may have major breakthroughs with God at moments in our life, we need to daily sit at his feet to trust in his promises, to lean into him, it would have been much better for Jacob to be honest with his brother because the truth was Jacob was in bad shape. He didn't need to be traveling far. He needed to rest. Deuteronomy 26.5 says something very interesting. It's this little tiny statement in the middle of the Bible and then it just kind of says it and moves on. But Deuteronomy 26.5, when it mentions about the, the celebrating that God had brought them into the land, in verse 5 of Deuteronomy 26 He says, and you shall speak and say before the Lord your God, a Syrian ready to perish was my father. And he went down into Egypt. Now, most people think, okay, well, that's what happened when Jacob was in the promised land. The famine came and they were going to die because they didn't have any food. So they went down into Egypt. There's one problem with that. Hosea 12, Hosea 12, 12. This is the verse we said of section we read last week when we talked about Jacob wrestling with God. Well, at the very end in verse 12, it mentions... And Jacob fled into the country of Syria, and Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. So the whole Syrian element is about his stay in Laban's area. He's not a Syrian by nature. He was living in that area when he was with Laban. When he crosses over the river and he comes home, he's no longer a Syrian. He's living in the land of Canaan. This area of Sukkoth is not over the Jordan River yet. He's not really come home yet. So still he's a Syrian. And so the reference there where he says, a Syrian ready to perish was my father. That's the type of shake Jacob's in here right now. God has just taken out his hip. He's in great pain. He's in no bit for a travel. And what he should have just done is says, Esau, I got a crazy story to tell you, man. I wrestled with God Almighty and I didn't win. (laughs) I can't come with you right now. In fact, I don't even know if that's the best thing for me to do. So I need to rest, and we're going to just stay somewhere nearby until we can recover and we can get moving. But for now, I can't come with you. That's what he should have done. So but rather than show that vulnerability and risk upsetting Esau by refusing to come to Seir, Jacob deceives his brother yet again to settle down for a while in Sukkoth. And so it says there that he built a house. Now, Sukkoth wasn't home, like I said. It's on the other side of Jordan. That's not where he's used to living, nor is it where Isaac would be right now. So he couldn't stay there forever. It's not the land that he was supposed to be in. We don't know how long he lived there, but eventually he did close up shop and he moved back over the Jordan. Chapter 33 of Genesis, verse 18. And Jacob came to Shalem. Now, Jerusalem is too far south for that to be in mind here because it says he came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paddan Aram, that's Syria, and pitched his tent in front of the city. So he crosses over the Jordan River and he comes to the city of Shechem. But it mentions here he came to Shalem or Jerusalem, a city of Shechem, but that's not a good translation. In fact, if you know the word Shalem is actually just the word what? Shalom, right? Which means peace. 
So it's more likely it simply means he came peacefully or without any problems to the city of Shechem because that's all of his associations in chapter 34 and 35 are with the city of Shechem. Now Shechem is about 40 miles north of Jerusalem and uh, the city controlled all the roads through the central hill region of Canaan. Uh, as such, it was an economic hub, a good place to settle down. And so Jacob, now finally home again, he settles, decides to settle down here. Now on an interesting note, this is where Jesus met the woman at the well, which is why in John chapter 4, verse 6, the well they're at is called Jacob's well. So there's just something to, to know. But I think more importantly, or more significant to Jacob's life at least, this was also the place where Abraham built his first altar upon entering the promised land. Now while Jacob came in faith, uh, Abraham came in faith, Jacob comes here through deception. And it is going to come back to bite him because things are not going to go well in Shechem. But we'll get to that in a couple weeks. Verse 19 And he brought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, that's the guy who was in charge of the city, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver. And he erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Now this is only the second piece of land that was purchased by the patriarchs. Remember Abraham purchased the burial ground for Sarah? This is only the second piece of ground that's been purchased by any of the patriarchs. Even though the circumstances of his arrival are not the best, it still shows that Jacob is recognizing the covenant promise of God, that this is the land God had promised to him, and in it, he erects his first altar. He erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. <laughs> it's almost like he's saying, this altar is to God, my God. That's something he hadn't done up to this point. He'd always referred to him as the God of my father, the God of my grandfather, the fear of Isaac. But now he says, God, my God, the God of Israel. God has a lot of work to do to transform him from Jacob into Israel. And some of that work's going to be painful for Jacob. Um, chapter 34 is not an easy chapter. I read one commentator that said, why any man would pick this passage to teach from the scripture, I don't know. There's a good reason. It's not an easy chapter. It's a difficult story. It's a horrific story from every angle. But it's one of the, one of the I guess you could say, advantages, I believe, of going verse by verse through the Bible is that you have to cover stuff like this. You can't sneak out of it. Um, it's here for our benefit, right? All of the Word of God is inspired, right? So we can be thoroughly equipped to be the, the fully equipped, you know, man or woman of God, right? So we need it. So Genesis 34, verse 1. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bore unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. And his soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel, and he spoke kindly unto the damsel. And Shechem spoke unto his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this damsel for a wife. Well, this is not exactly a good start to the chapter. It mentions here Dinah, the daughter of Leah. Now you know that Leah was one of Jacob's four wives, and she had men, the most of the children were from her, and that she had many daughters, but one of the daughters was named Dinah. We learned that earlier when all the children were listed, and we learned back then the reason why is because of this event. There's something unique that happens to her. She would be between the age of 12 to 16 at this time. Uh, we are unsure exactly when she was born in the 20 years of service to Laban, but that's kind of the age bracket where she would be. 
Now, if you were 12 years old at that time, ladies, you were considered a fully grown woman. You were of a marriageable age at that point in time. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's how it was in that culture. I'm not saying God was for that. I'm just saying that's how it was. And being a full-grown woman at that time, according to those cultural standards, she went out and hung out with the other grown women of, of that culture. And the implication here is that when she went out to see the daughters of the land, this became part of her life, that she spent a lot of time with these pagan young ladies. And in doing so, she attracted the attention of a very important young man, Shechem, the son of the city's ruler. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, it says he took her and lay with her and defiled her. And like many teenage girls, I imagine she probably thought she had the situation under control, probably enjoyed some of the attention, but it soon got out of hand. The word there, took, implies a seizure. Henry Morris said, unattached women were considered fair game in cities of this time period. Promiscuity was not only common, but ingrained in the pagan religious systems of this part of the world. To be a woman in this culture and to catch the eye of a prince and to have him deflower you was considered a great honor to your goddess or God. And so in the men at that time, they really didn't think twice about doing something like this, unfortunately. And so he seized her and he lay with her and he defiled her. Now, does that mean he raped her? Our culture, it decries rape because it's not consensual. But God says anytime sex occurs outside of marriage, it's taking something that does not belong to you. So whether he seduced her or he physically forced her against her will, God is obviously not for that because he took something that didn't belong to him. He took her purity. And so God calls it rape. The word therefore defiled, it means rape. It means to violate a woman sexually. He took something that did not belong to him, and God defines it as a violation. And I want to address some different groups here tonight in just this topic alone. I think sometimes we, we talk about this, we think rape is horrible, but we like to not think of other things as horrible. Men tonight, could I speak to you for just a moment? Do you realize that what you're, this is what you're doing when you ogle a woman that's not your wife? Or when you look at pornography? Or when your flirtation crosses a line? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, you know, I love it. I just read recently a, a quotation by a very important individual in the, United, the, the American church who said, the Bible never addresses fornication or sex before marriage. Really? Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. Paul writes to them and says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication or all kinds of sexual sin. And then he explains what he means here in particular. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. The idea of the phrase possessing your vessel refers to how to get a spouse. He says that every one of you should understand how to find a spouse. And doing so, you do it in sanctification and honor. And he explains what that means. Sanctification means to be set apart. Honor means to place high value upon the person. So not in the lust or the desire, King James says, of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. The idea of basically the way the world looks at it is you see something you like, you should go after it, and you should get it. And he says that's not how it should work for us. Verse 6, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner. 
The phrase there, go beyond, means to take something that does not belong to you. That no man take from someone else and defraud. The word there means to seek to get more. That no man take from and go beyond and seek to get more, take from and seek to get more from his brother in any manner. Because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. And he says, if you despise that, you're not despising me for saying it. He says, but you despise God who has also given unto us his Holy Spirit. God desires that we go about it in a different way, a different way. That lust and desire is not to be the motivation behind it. Listen, attraction's normal. I always thought it was weird. At school, you know, we call it Calvary Chapel Bible College, but a lot of us would call it Calvary Chapel Bridal College. Because you would go and, and you know, you know you're, you're out there and, you know, you're in, ingrained in all these, you know, spiritual truths. And you're thinking, I'm e- exactly what some other person would want, right? They should want, you know, this would be the ideal place. I'm going to find the exact perfect godly woman for me and I'm the perfect godly man for them. Thank God I was engaged when I went to school. I didn't have to mess with any of that. But I was always fascinated by these people. And they'd say, well, you know, I like her, but I'm not attracted to her. I'm like, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem. Attraction is normal, okay? I remember someone asked me, I think I, I totally, they knew I was carnal from that moment forward. They said, how did you know Bev was the one? And I'm like, she's drop dead gorgeous and she loves Jesus. What else do I need to know? It's a no-brainer. Attraction is normal. What you do with it is where you exercise the godly attribute of self-control and do it in sanctification and honor. Or it's where you cross a line and you take what isn't yours. Although Esau had shown kindness to Jacob and forgave him, Jacob was afraid and wouldn't let go of the situation. So he ran away with his family to Shechem. This is not where God wanted him to go. And unfortunately, tragedy will strike at Shechem. Unlike Jacob at this time, we must surrender our everything to God. But if you have questions or would like prayer concerning anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.